Point number one, all application points must be derived from the text of Scripture. Point number two, trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit does not mean the absence of specific application points. Point number three, do not rebuke a private individual situation with a public rebuke in a sermon. Number four, strive to know your audience so as to give meaningful application points. Number five, if possible, illustrate your application points. Number six, when you have a guest preacher enthusiastically reinforce his message immediately after he preaches. Number seven, do not prescribe what you yourself cannot do. Number eight, offer hope which extends beyond the instructions given in the sermon itself. Number nine, do not preach to people who are not in the room. Number 10, speak with varying degrees of confidence based upon the clarity of the text. Number 11, love the people and speak in a loving manner. Number 12, propel all applications with the gospel. Number 13, never give all of your application points at the beginning of the sermon. <laughs> Number 14, I can't believe Christmas is only 43 weeks away. <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, what I am about to try to instruct these men and these women to do, Lord, is very difficult. Lord, we want to acknowledge that if an actual application of the message is going to happen, that is going to be the work of your spirit. So Lord, I pray for these who teach and preach the Bible, Lord, that they will see fruit from their messages because you, Lord, will have done the work. Yet, Lord, as the means by which you do this is often us giving points of application, I pray that you would teach us how to do this a little bit better so as to facilitate holiness in your people. Uh, this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I know that there are other ingredients, but the main ingredients of any sermon, generally speaking, are the introduction, a review, the exegesis, the explanation of the text, illustrations, the conclusion, and points of application. I would like to take those six elements and I would like to rank them in terms of how they are perceived by the people in terms of their attentiveness. Like, what do people listen to? Take those six items, 
what do people listen to, what do they not listen to. Ranking number six, dead last, is the review. Nobody listens. The only reason I do it is so that I won't feel guilty. There, there's nobody, when you say, as we saw last week, nobody cares. No, nobody. My wife doesn't care. Nobody cares. Number five. In terms of, I'm not saying importance, I'm just saying in terms of what people will listen to, number five is the exegesis. It is the the explanation of what is happening in the text. Oftentimes when you are explaining the text, you can see that people are in a coma, that you could do surgery on them. They're, They're not listening. Number four, the conclusion. Now, people who have been checked out for the entire sermon, they might brighten up for a moment, sort of like as you're walking out the door, you reach and grab a handful of crackers or something to go on the road. Let me see if I can get something before I go. They will do you the courtesy of listening to the conclusion. The top half, ranking number three, is the introduction. Every listener with fresh ears and an unspent attention span will effortlessly make it through the introduction. Even if you know that the person who is preaching is not generally speaking a good preacher, you're gonna give him the benefit of the doubt this time. You're gonna hang on to that introduction. Number two, which I almost put at number one, but number two are illustrations. Pastors, I want you to take note of this. Not only when you're preaching, but I want you to look around the room. I want you to feel the energy of the room. A pastor is doing exegesis. He is giving an explanation of the text. And then immediately when he starts to tell a story, the people will perk up. And and sadly, I say this humorously, but it actually is the actual truth it will often be the only thing that they remember about the sermon. It is certainly the only thing that people will comment on after the sermon. Seldom will they be able to tell you why the story you told actually connects with the exegesis at all. I mean, doesn't it kill you that you have spent yourself all week long studying the text, you deliver it to people, disinterested. You tell some corny story and they are riveted to you. I remember my daughter Madison was probably about 10 or 11 years old and we were riding home from church one day and she said to me very honestly, she said, Daddy, you do know that most of the stuff you talk about nobody's interested in at all. I mean, you know the experience. You, you, uh, someone will walk up to you. They're not trying to hurt your feelings. Cheerfully and innocently, they will walk up to you after a sermon and they will say, hey, pastor, I get what you're saying. Those jalapeno peppers, they do the same thing to me too. <laughs> oh man, that hit home today, pastor. I, I used to have a dog just like that when I was a boy. But I digress. The point is, they don't get the point. But you know that already. And the point is, they pay attention to illustrations and can recall 
with scary precision. Just look at their faces. You know that you have them. That's in second place. But the gold medal goes to application. The most listened to portion of the sermon is application. That is when the people are most attentive. They want to know if you're going to step on their toes. They want to see if you are fearless. Uh, They will perk up to see if you figured out how they are listening and how they are living. Uh, They want to see if you have insight to tackle their pet peeves and hobby horses. They will look to see if you will sufficiently attack all of the people in the room who are less sanctified than they are. They may even legitimately be interested to see how you are going to pull something practical out of a text which is so theological. And maybe even sometimes they are genuinely interested in becoming more holy so they would like to know what to do. But in any case, when you give application points, the people are going to listen. That You know this. You've preached your entire sermon. You get to the end and you say, I have three application points this morning. People who have been glazed over for 45 minutes will scramble for a pencil to jot this down. And even if they don't follow the argument of the sermon or see where you're getting the application points from, they're interested to know what they are. They don't care whether or not you derived your to-do list from the passage. People, for some reason, appreciate the bottom line. So knowing that they will be listening, and in most cases, and and they are trying by grace to do what is right and what you prescribe, I will submit to you that we must commit ourselves to do our very best to be those who skillfully are appliers of God's word to their hearts. Turn to Luke chapter 3. We're going to use John the Baptist in Luke 3 as an example of a preacher who knew how to apply God's word to his hearers. In verses 1 and 2, Luke lists eight very influential, powerful people. I'm not going to read these verses because... I'm very confident that I would mispronounce their names and their jurisdictions. Luke does this. He gives these eight powerful people, uh, first of all, to prove the historical accuracy of his gospel, and he also does it for the contrast. Because in verse 2, after listing these eight influential people, he contrasts it by saying, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness the language of God calling an Old Testament prophet. Eight very influential people, and then Zechariah, a nobody, an old, obscure Levite, and the jurisdiction of John the Baptist, the wilderness. It is nowhere, except it's not anywhere important. Yet God chooses to accomplish his purposes, not through the mighty and not through the powerful, but through the unconventional, and through the obscure, through the word of God. Application. This is an example of an application point in the middle of a sermon. Application. Maybe in this election year, we ought to concentrate more on the word of God and less on politics, because God does. 
Notice also that whatever it was that John the Baptist said, it was the word of the Lord. Uh, he was a man who spoke Biblin. He had the word and he proclaimed it. So it doesn't matter if we are a gifted communicator or not. It is not our opinions that we proclaim, but we preach the word. Look in verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this does not mean that water baptism can forgive your sins, but it is to say that those who are baptized must be those who have repented of their sins. Application. This is another example of an application given in the middle of a sermon. Are you baptizing people with a solid working knowledge of the gospel, yet people who have shown no evidence of repentance. Do, do you understand the question? They know the truth, perhaps, but John was baptizing people who repented. Specific application in the middle of a sermon. Children can and do repent. It's just harder to detect whether or not they have repented. And therefore, we at North Shore Baptist Church do not baptize children. Simply because nobody at this church has enough discernment to accurately discern if the repentance is genuine. We used to baptize children, but our batting average is lower than the backup catcher for the New York Mets. Most of the children that we baptized turned out not to be believers. So we believed that we were doing more harm than good when it was revealed that they actually were not regenerate, but yet we endorsed that and led them to believe that they were. Now, as I said, God can and does save children, as evidenced by the fact that John the Baptist himself was regenerated in the womb. And North Shore Baptist Church could be wrong about this. But just think about it. Who are you baptizing, and do they show evidence of repentance? Maybe we are wrong. But I want you to think about it. That is an example of application which is not driven home hard or with force. I'm drawing an implication from the text. In verses four through six, John the Baptist has an unfair advantage seeing as how he is prophesied in Scripture. We cannot go apples to apples with John the Baptist. None of us were prophesied in Scripture a couple of weeks ago, I was at a pastor's conference down in Philadelphia, and there was a gentleman there from a uh, charismatic church, and he preached the crowning jewel of the day. I mean, he really preached a great message, better than all of the other guys. And I told someone, I said, that guy preached the best message, and he said, well, he had an unfair advantage. He had the Holy Spirit. <laughs> John the Baptist had an unfair advantage. He was the Elijah who is to come. Of those born of woman, there's no, none greater than John the Baptist. 
But there is one principle that we can derive from his message, and that is in verse 4, he used his voice to cry out, prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way of the Lord. You see, some people will look at the message and the preaching of John the Baptist because of all the practical things that he said and argue that he was a moralist, but I will argue that John the Baptist was very Christocentric, which is why he was preparing the way of the Lord. He was pointing to Christ. And so the application point here in the middle of the sermon is preach Christ. It was John who said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You know, there are some verses that need to be quoted in the old King James. Please, at my funeral, do not read the 23rd Psalm in the ESV. I'm serious. Romeo, Romeo, where are you, Romeo? No, sometimes, sometimes you have to use the old King James. This is an example of an application point which is absolutely meaningless, but you insert it so as to give the people's mind a rest. (laughs) More importantly, the application here from verse 4 is that everything that we say has to be anchored in and propelled clearly by the gospel. True, John had moral commands, but they were all part of of a larger goal, and that was to exalt Christ, his cross, his death. Paul doesn't say, woe is me if I do not preach. He says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. First Corinthians chapter 15, 3 and 4, the gospel is of first importance. Notice in verses 7, 8, and 9, there is a beautiful mixture of identifying sinners Uh, This is what he does in verse 7, that he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized to him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He identifies sinners, but then in verse 8, at the beginning, he gives hope. He says to them, you're not in hell already, so now that you're here, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then what he does in the second half of verse 8 and in verse 9 is he demolishes spiritual pride. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees and every tree, therefore, that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is speaking of the spiritual pride of the Jewish people and how that was demolished by the judgment of God. Likewise, your long-standing, super-committed, multi-generational families in your church, people who never consider that they themselves would ever be in hell, people who have a false sense of security based upon their religiosity, based upon their family lineage. They may be the very ones who are hindering God's blessing in your church, and that's why a preacher always needs to say from the pulpit, I don't care who you are. And it doesn't matter who your father is or who your mother is. I don't care if you are a deacon or an elder. It doesn't matter. 
You need not be a respecter of persons, but you need to let all of the people know that all of them are supposed to be listening no matter how good their pedigree. Doesn't matter what your position is. Here is an example of me using application in the middle of the sermon to speak to all of you. Because most of you are pastors. And I wanna say, I don't care who you are, and God doesn't care who you are. If you are habitually looking at pornography, you will go to hell. It doesn't matter how long you have been a pastor. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You are not saved by your cessation of looking at pornography. You're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. But pornography is the bane of the 21st century American church. And so what I am doing right now is I am applying this to everyone in the room. I don't care who you are. I am literally talking to you. I'm trying to zero in on you. Pornography is destroying and damning people to hell. You must repent. And the way that you repent, here is an application point which is adjacent to that one, which hopefully will give you homework and hope, is to step into the light. Because if you are looking at pornography, right now what you are saying to yourself and to God is, I get the point, Lord, I repent right now, I promise that I will never do it again, but you will. And here's how you stop. One of the ways you stop. You step into the light. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I've talked to many people who have been delivered from pornography and they said that for years they would tell themselves, when hearing something like I'm saying right now, God, I'm sorry, God, I'll never do it again but it isn't until they step into the light that they get actual help. You need to step into the light. You need biblical counseling. You say, if I step into the light, I might lose my church. Well, better to go to heaven as a layman than to enter hell with the title reverend in front of your name. Verses 10 through 14 make it clear that he has the attention of the people. We know this because they are asking for specific application. What then shall we do? Three groups ask, what then shall we do? They want to know what is the application. You see, when God's Spirit does not have the attention of the hearer, it doesn't matter how clever the application points are, it's going to fall, pl fall flat. However, when God grabs the heart not only are they willing to listen, but they are eager to listen and they are ready to do what God commands. And therefore, preach as though there is someone in the audience with a soft and a ready heart. And don't shy away from hard-hitting direct application just because you are getting many blank stares of disinterest. Preach as though they are hanging upon every word because maybe someone in the congregation is. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me, Jesus said. Preach to the sheep. There might be somebody saying, Pastor, what then shall we do? 
And then tell them directly and clearly in love, in a gospel-centered way, what they should do. Notice also in verses 10 through 14, two things I want you to notice from these verses. And I, let me read them, please. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors, those that were cheating people, also came to be baptized, and he, and he and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And the soldiers asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. Two things I want you to note from these points of application which John the Baptist gives to the people, to the tax collectors and to the soldiers. And that is, that the topics, the gospel-centered topics of generosity, honesty, and justice are always in bounds. Generosity, honesty, and justice are always in bounds for a preacher. Let's talk about generosity. Money is very important. You have the attention of the people when you start to talk about money. Money, greed, stewardship, sacrifice, love, benevolence, they are all fair game. Do not shy away from it. How about honesty? Cheating the people. Listen, the subjects of lying and stealing and cheating, these are actual sins that your people deal with and they need to be confronted directly. It is in bounds. And then justice Oh my, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, justice. It is now a misdefined word which divides people and promotes certain political ideologies with distortion. But here's what we need to do. We need to grab a hold of that fat baby's ankle and dump out the bathwater and at the same time hold on to actual biblical justice. Because here's what has happened. The pendulum has swung so far in the direction of social justice that what we have done, perhaps, is to say, we can't even address that, for if we address that, we will be associated with one political group or another. When in reality, Micah 6.8 says, what do we need to do? We need to worship the God who loves justice. Justice is a matter that we need to address. And so do not shy away from preaching biblical justice. The past four years, that has been a subject which I think many evangelical pastors have avoided because we don't want to give our people the idea that we are social justice warriors. There is a difference between biblical justice and the trademark social justice, just as there is a difference between lightning and the lightning bug. And from the pulpit, we must stand up for what is right. Now, here is an example of applying justice in the middle of a sermon. Pastors, stand up boldly against abortion for that is the most cruel form of injustice. Please don't buy the popular mantra which says we need to care about the born as well as the unborn and therefore you can't preach against abortion until you preach 
sufficiently about poverty? Well, I would say, amen, there is a sense in which we do need to address the subject of poverty from the pulpit. But the magnitude of abortion in the United States is by far the worst bane upon our civilization with respect to the subject of injustice. And by saying, well, I, 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 I'm not really able to speak against abortion because I haven't really sufficiently come up with a solution for poverty. Listen, I think it's a horrible thing that people who are alive are not eating. I, I think that that is bad. I'm not saying that that is a good thing. But there is a big difference between that and 600,000 human beings having their limbs ripped off and having their skulls crushed and being vacuumed out of the womb of their mother. 600,000 a year. That is injustice. Yes, poverty is an issue. It is an injustice. But abortion is 600,000 times worse. And therefore, pastors, abortion is an injustice that needs to be addressed and given special application. The second thing I want you to see about John the Baptist addressing these three groups is that he knew his audience and he directed his preaching where it hit them the hardest. His application points were very nuanced. They were not vague. They were not general. The tax collectors needed to hear about extortion. John the Baptist studied his audience and addressed actual sins. Let's move on to verses 15 through 17. John the Baptist once again gives proof that the overall thrust of his ministry is Christocentric. Not one to point to himself, but he's the one that points to Christ. For Christ must increase and I must decrease. But notice here, being Christocentric does not mean that in your sermon you are the bad cop and then at the end you bring in Jesus as the good cop. I I I'm going to preach law and I'm going to speak about sin, I'm going to talk about damnation, I'm going, to, I'm going to bring it in hard, and then I'm going to bring in Jesus as the solution, as if Jesus doesn't care about sin or that Jesus will not judge. Now, it is true that those who do trust in Jesus will not be damned, but you can also be Christocentric and preach damnation in hell to the unrepentant. John the Baptist did, verses 15 through 17. As the people were in expectation and all their questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He's pointing away from himself, his unworthiness and, and the greatness of Christ. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I believe that the fire that he's referring to here is the fire of judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand. That is definitely judgment. To clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff will he, who is he? He is Jesus Christ. He will burn with unquenchable fire. So in being Christocentric, John is also preaching the total Christ, the Christ of love and sacrifice, but the Christ who will 
damn those who do not believe in him. In verses 18 through 20, John the Baptist confronts one of those powerful people listed in verse 1, Herod. Herod stole his brother's wife. And John said, Herod, that is unlawful for you to do that. You know, Herod used to like to listen to John preach, but he didn't like that. Application, pastors, people will love your preaching until you hit them where they live. You throw a rock at a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that got hit. John the Baptist made a point of application which cost him, cost him his head. Are you willing to tell the truth regardless? Several years ago, Caleb Bunch told me he was speaking to a pastor in Long Island. In this congregation, there were two men who were living together in homosexual love. The pastor told Caleb, he said, this is a matter that I feel I need to handle slowly. I'm probably about five years away from even addressing that. I'm not saying we need to be reckless, but we do need to be fearless. And if we are, there may be a cost involved. Knowing that your points of application may cost you your ecclesiastical head. We have no jobs, we have no money, our preacher's heads are falling off. Now let me throw a caveat in here. There are some preachers who go out of their way unnecessarily to shock and to be offensive. They're not actually courageous. They're prideful and they see themselves as martyrs. They believe that they are doing the work of God that no one else can do. There's no grace, there's no love, there's just shock. Speak the truth and persecution will find you. You don't have to grab the dog by the ears. Well, that's John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. It's a quick overview. Now let's go back to the initial 13 points of application. Few, if any, are derived from John the Baptist's exposition, but please note, very few of your congregants will know whether or not you're actually getting the application points from the text anyway. <laughs> so you, you don't have to derive your points from the text of Scripture. You do not have to derive your application points from the text of Scripture. You just don't have to do that. Number one, all application points must be derived from the text of Scripture. <laughs> By this, I mean that we are not serving our people, nor are we serving the Lord well when we just offer an opinion with the phrase, thus saith the Lord, and Again, that's a phrase that must be said in Old King James. Not thus saith, it is thus saith the Lord. And you don't say thus saith the Lord unless you can back it with the text. By definition, when you are preaching God's word, you are speaking for the Lord. And therefore, make sure before God, with him as your witness and him as your judge, 
Do you find it ironic or do you find it coincidental or do you find it providential that three preachers today, not corroborating with one another, all three of us have in our notes, your preaching primarily is with God as your audience. With him as your judge, can you honestly draw conclusions which are based in the text and supported by the text? You see, that there is a clear logical deduction which can be demonstrated plainly from the text. Please do not jump to conclusions just based upon how your heart or your mind will run away. Stories told of two farmers who wandered onto the campus of the University of Alabama. They had never been to a college before. They got separated from one another. One of the men was walking along and he ran into a distinguished gentleman. The distinguished gentleman said to the farmer, what are you doing here? He said, I don't know, I'm just looking around. The professor said, well, maybe you should take some classes. The man said, well, I don't know, like what kind of classes should I take? The professor said, maybe you could take a logic class. The man said, what's that? He said, well, it's when you come to conclusions by deducing. The farmer said, I have no idea what you're talking about. The professor said, well, uh, let me illustrate it for you. Do you have a lawnmower? The man said, yes, I do. He said, well, if you have a lawnmower, I would deduce then that you have a lawn. That, that's logic. He goes, well, I do have a lawn. And he said, therefore, I can conclude through deducing that you have a house. He goes, well, as a matter of fact, I do have a house. And the professor said, and if you have a house, I can logically deduce probably that you have a wife. The man said, well, as a matter of fact, I do have a wife. And the professor said, well, then I could logically deduce that you are a heterosexual. The man said, indeed, I am. I am a heterosexual. And he left, and he was just on cloud nine. He is walking back toward the center of campus. He finds his friend, the other farmer, and he says, good news. I'm going to take a class here. He says, what kind of class are you going to take? He said, I'm going to take a logic class. His friend said, what's logic? He said, logic is when you come to conclusions by deducing. His friend said, I don't even know what that means. He goes, let me illustrate. Do you have a lawnmower? His friend said, no. He said, you're gay? <laughs> don't, don't jump to conclusions. Tell your people, tell your people what you are telling them, listen, and tell them why you are saying it. And the why has to be anchored in the text. Not only does it teach your members how to do good hermeneutics, but more importantly, it builds credibility when you preach from week to week and it gives you boldness to press the points of application home with confidence. Why can I press the point of application home with confidence? Because I know this is what the Lord says and it's not just my opinion. The source is God himself and his word is powerful, not your subjective opinion. Now that's not to say that your opinions are wrong or unhelpful, but it is to say that we who are called to preach are called to preach the word. And that includes exegesis, which propels application. Number two, Trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit does not mean the absence of specific application points. 
Have you ever heard a guy get up and preach a sermon? And I mean, he just knocks it out of the park. Grand slam, beautiful exegesis, flawless homiletics. And then he will close the sermon by saying this. And as we conclude, let us trust that the Holy Spirit will make application to our hearts. Well, amen, he's God, he can do that. But he also uses means, especially in the midst of an unwise generation of people who have twisted minds and are hearing from the media and from their own hearts and in society points of application all the time. They are having points of application given to them all the time in the media, on the news, in music, in movies, from their friends. They are getting points of application and they are confused. All three parties that came to John the Baptist in Luke 3, John the Baptist heard them say, what shall we do? You have identified them as sinners. They have identified themselves as sinners. Now they want to know what to do. Help your people from the pulpit by telling them how to apply the text to their lives. John the Baptist knew his audience. You should know your people and based upon what you know, tell them what to do. Don't just stand up and preach a wonderful sermon and say, may God bless this. Number three, do not rebuke a private individual situation with a public rebuke in a sermon. Pastors who do this are cowardly. They're afraid to address sin one-on-one. Don't ever put a sermon together in your mind with an individual person in mind and then in a pseudo-veiled way or not veiled way rebuke or embarrass the person while hiding behind the pulpit. You know that Sunday is the Lord's day. You know that we are called not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Let's say, for example, you have a boat and you're out on that boat every other week. (laughs) Meanwhile, you've got one guy in your congregation who has a boat. (laughs) You don't settle personal differences from the pulpit. People can tell whether or not you're targeting them. And it never softens their heart. It does embarrass them. It angers them. On the other hand, when you make application, not knowing what is happening, and you hit someone unintentionally, they will feel not as though you are speaking to them, but that the Lord is speaking through you to them. It has an enormous impact upon people's hearts. They're not hearing your voice, but they're hearing the voice of the Lord. Number four, strive to know your audience so as to give meaningful application points. Again, John the Baptist He knew how tax collectors and soldiers behaved in general. And based upon that, he hit the bullseye. Here's a helpful hint. The most effective place to research sin is the library. No. The most effective place to research sin is simply by looking at your own heart. How did he know? He's done a lot of research. I have been living with a sinner for 63 years. I know a lot about how sinners think. And if you will be honest with yourself about how sin deceives you and sin works in you, you are able to speak to your people. 
Pastors who can give honest, honest evaluations of what is going on in the heart of a sinner based upon what they know about themselves are effective. So how do we balance point number three and point number four? Point number three is don't target individuals. Point number four is hit them where they live. Here's the difference. Point number three is cowardly, and it is personal, and it's usually vindictive. Point number four is insightful, it is courageous, and it is loving. So spend time with your people, get to know them and love them, listen to them, and you will be able to preach to them. Number five, if possible, illustrate your application points. This is not the most Christocentric point that I'm going to make today, but I think it is the point which is going to help you the most. There are some schools of thought with respect to preaching which say, never talk about yourself. Well, we preach not ourselves, but we preach Christ crucified. That does not mean that you cannot use yourself as an illustration. Illustrations, as I said at the outset, are things that people listen to. Biblical illustrations, they are fantastic. Historic illustrations, uh, such as Larry gave today concerning the missionary, they are so interesting. Hypothetical illustrations, they serve a purpose, but they do not hit home. But personal stories, by far, they are the most helpful in getting close to the heart of the, per- the person. Now, please don't use the pulpit as a confession booth. We had a person one time leading singing here Sunday morning and got the microphone before the service and said, Lord, I just need you to forgive me. I'm such an idiot. I screamed at my wife the entire way to church this morning. It's like, wow, that's, no, that's, that's not good for the reputation repent, first of all, don't scream at your wife, but secondly, you're not using the pulpit as a a place to confess your public sins, but you can tell stories, and they don't have to be long. Please, when you are illustrating, do not ever make yourself the hero of the story. Use personal stories to illustrate what application looks like in real life. Or, or, Or make note of someone in the congregation who has done an exemplary job of obeying the text, not so as to flatter or to puff up the person, but to encourage the church, this is what it looks like to make personal application. For example, Jackie Amorelli is sitting here right now. I've never heard her complain, but for years she has lived in pain. She always serves joyfully, She always presses on. She is an encouragement to me. She is Christ-like. She is an example. She is a living illustration of what it means to suffer and to live in a way that is content. Number six, When you have a guest preacher enthusiastically reinforce his message immediately after he preaches, your church is listening with two different ears. One ear is their own, and secondly, they are listening through your ear. They want to know what do you think about what has just been said. And if you agree with what has been said, then you stand up and you graciously thank the preacher, and then you reiterate the point 
quickly and enthusiastically. It is the most deflating thing in the world for a congregation, for a guest preacher to preach and for the pastor to stand up and say, couple of announcements. You need to make sure your coffee cups are thrown away. It's like, what just happened? Application comes not only in your preaching, but in your reinforcement of others' preaching. Add value to their sermon by driving home the points. Nobody does this better than Vernon Allen in Jamaica. Number seven, do not prescribe what you yourself cannot do. As a self-explanatory, don't believe the old adage which says we are called to preach a better sermon than we can live. That is hypocrisy and that is what Christ hates. Application points in your sermon will be lived out by your people but they're going to remember more how you live than what you say. Preach application points with your life. Preach application points with your life. David Brainerd said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. Number eight, offer hope which extends beyond the instructions given in the sermon itself. You only have a limited amount of time. You've spent a lot of time on your introduction and in your exegesis, and now the clock on the wall says you don't have much time left for application. You stand up and you realize, wow, I cannot develop this as fully as I need to. In such a case, you need to say to the people, here's your application point. If you need to talk about this more, I want you to know that I am available and the elders are available, or here is a book, or go to a biblical counselor, but offer resources beyond what they will hear in that sermon. So for example, yesterday, I preached on union with Christ. It was not an evangelistic sermon at all. It was directed toward believers. At the end of the sermon, I just said this. I said, if you are not in Christ, you need to believe and call upon the name of the Lord, but I don't have time to develop that this morning. Please come talk to me if you want to hear the gospel and know what it is to be saved. Young lady came to our church yesterday, first time she'd ever, a Buddhist young lady had never been in church before, senior in high school, walks out of the church. She is weeping. I set up an appointment with her for next Sunday as providence would have it. She goes to get pizza. Garrett Connor and George Brooks are in there. They recognize her. They begin to talk to her. She is still being pressed by the sermon, and George and Garrett bring her to our house, and I shared the gospel with her yesterday afternoon. Didn't have the time to do it in the sermon, but I wanted them to know there is availability to develop this further at a later time. If you can't say it all from the pulpit, give people options, resources, and opportunities to do it later. Number nine, don't preach to people who are not in the room. Now you listen here to me, Joe Biden. Listen. <laughs> He's not, he's not listening to your sermon. 
You said, well, John the Baptist preached to Herod. Yes, he knew Herod, and Herod knew about him. Don't chastise the people who are not in the room because they didn't come to church that day. Don't, 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 don't beat up the people who are there for the people who are not there. You can be dubbed a fearless preacher by speaking against those who will never hear you. No, you are called to preach to your people. Love the one you're with. Love the one you're with. Number 10, speak with, a, with varying degrees of confidence based upon the clarity of the text. Look, maybe I'm wrong about baptizing children. Maybe Presbyterians are right, although we know they aren't. <laughs> but, but maybe those who baptize children are, are, are right. I cannot press hard because I don't have a chapter and verse to say, don't baptize children because God doesn't want you to do it. I could be wrong. I am making a case why I think it is unwise and how it has not worked out for us, but maybe I'm wrong. Do not press everything with an equal degree of urgency. I was at a church in Florida one time where this guy was preaching. He was a hyper-dispensationalist, and he was, I kid you not, he was preaching that Hitler was the Antichrist, that Hitler's going to be raised again, and he is the man of sin. One of his deacons closes the evening in prayer and says, Lord, I just thank you that our pastor isn't afraid to preach the truth. And I thought, this is moronic. There's nothing wrong with being confident, but you better be right if you're confident. And it's okay to use language like perhaps or maybe or here's my best guess. And therefore, I believe at this time, based upon my understanding that this is what we should be doing at this time. Godly pastors disagree on things. Don't be willing to die on every hill. I've met preachers who believe that every issue is a big issue, and it's not. Be wise. Number 11, love your people and speak in a loving manner. The best way to speak in a loving manner to your people is to look them in the eye and to tell them that you love them, to like actually say the words. Make it your practice from the pulpit to tell the people that you love them. Yesterday, we had a situation where there were three teenagers in our church who had done not something horrible, but sort of like knucklehead stuff, and, and they're meeting with their parents and their elder and our elders, and Cade is conducting the meeting, and, and he is, man, he's, he's reading scripture, he's being direct, he's going through the youth group code of conduct, and then he says, and just one more thing. I want you three guys to know that we love you. I want you to know that we love you. The Lord loves us. So many preachers feel as though it is their calling to beat their people up. When giving a hard application, it doesn't mean that you back off of the specifics but it also doesn't mean that you speak in a way that is cavalier or brash. Speak the truth in love. 
not as if you are disgusted with them. Number 12, finally, propel all applications with the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, the gospel is of first importance. You remember what Jesus said, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. If you can't take the text to the scriptures or to, to Christ, then you have not understood the text. If you haven't understood the text, then you can't apply the text. In all things, he must have the preeminence. Therefore, tie it to the gospel. You see, you can preach a sermon with logical application points from the text and still not be of any help to your people if you don't take it to Christ. Because apart from Christ, there is no forgiveness. From apart from Christ, there is no hope. You read the New Testament, application is anchored in the gospel. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. We need people to do work in the church. We need them to serve. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You need to forgive. Forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. You know, this church doesn't run itself for free. We need money. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. You've got to take it to Christ. And you have to exalt him, and he has to be that which propels your application. And if you don't give them Christ, the best that you're giving them is moralism. And here's what happens over time if you preach moralism. On the one hand, you might have people who become discouraged and they say, I can't do that. I'm not capable of doing that, so they will just stop trying altogether. Or you will create hypocrites who will say, I can't do that, but I need to leave you with the impression that I do, and they will live a double life. Or they will become Pharisees, and they will gut it out, and morally they will do it, but their hearts are far from the Lord. But if you preach the gospel, if you preach Jesus, the people will say, no, I can't do it. I'm a sinner, but Christ died for me, and there's no condemnation, and Christ has been joined to me, and now I have the power to live in obedience based upon Christ. You give them Christ, you give them the power to live the Christian life. You give them texts of Scripture without Christ, you give them moralism, and they'll either, they'll either end up being wild, or they'll be hypocrites, or they'll be Pharisees. No, we want disciples. So let us apply the word, always linking it to Christ. Father in heaven, now to take this message next Sunday and apply some of it to our people in our sermons is, is a huge challenge. Lord, I pray now that you would give each pastor, each Bible teacher, the grace to learn how to do this so that your son might be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.